the J cut and this is the K cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. Speaking of which, hopefully movies will be the next word on Wordle. Uh, my name is Andreas. I'm the creator and uh, one of the main writers of Films Fatale. I love international and art house cinema, but I also love a little bit of everything. Who else do I have with me? James here. Content creator and stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I'm also a contributor to Films Fatale. My main interests include no-budget cinema, which reminds me, I just released another Guerrilla Film Fair article about Christopher Nolan's following. I'm Rachel, and I also write for Films Fatale. I love international cinema and lost films, as well as the golden age. The thing about lost films is that when you look at them, you think about how many films were important or contributed to cinema in some way, and yet they are missing and will likely never be found. So that got me thinking, what are some films that contributed to film history, were important in some way, but maybe weren't very good? For example, my grandmother always insisted to go see the movie Stromboli by Roberto Rossellini, which is not considered one of his finest movies but it was the one that provoked the scandal between him and Ingrid Bergman. So it was important to my grandmother for that reason alone way back in 1948. There's also um, probably the most iconic example, especially if you're a film student, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, where I will never forget on an exam, and this is, this is a true story, I was asked to give the example of the difference between an opinion and fact and... I basically said, fact, Birth of a Nation is a very important film when it comes to the major motion picture. Opinion, I think it's complete and utter, and I can't say what I said. I got an A, though, so (laughs) basically my prof agreed. But point is, it's a film that's being taught to this day, and that's because it's important, but it's not necessarily a good one. It's definitely a problematic one, definitely a disgusting one. But even with all of that aside, is it a good one? I don't know so much. So this is a very interesting uh, topic today because I feel like, can we find something that's not Birth of a Nation? Something that maybe we personally um, can contribute to this discussion that maybe will stir up some discussion. So before we start, can I give an interesting fact about Birth of a Nation? Uh Oh, okay. (laughs) Did you know the Klan didn't burn crosses until that movie came out? Wow. It's like how the mafia actually took a lot of stuff reportedly from the Godfather and it wasn't the Godfather taking it from the mafia. They just imitated the movie. Oh, wow. That's, I I did not know that actually that um, makes me dislike it even more. I do know that the clan was all but gone once the movie came out and it actually inspired more people to take part in it. So I knew it was like influential for a bad reason already, but geez, okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. Well, it was also the first movie ever screened in the white house, apparently. Oh, wow. Uh, Let's be honest. It probably was screened many times. Anyway, before we get into political territory, let's, uh, who wants to go first with this, with this topic? Uh, The first half of this episode, we're going to be looking at, yeah, influential films that we personally don't like or think are very good. So who wants to go first? I can go first. I I tried to come up with, well, first of all, this wasn't an easy one to come up with because there's so many different directions it could go. So I decided to kind of go with something. We, we've touched on this a bit before in a previous episode, but something I want to touch a bit more on. And I think there's importance to Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho. And it's crucial to the conversation when it comes to remakes. It asks a lot of questions with the execution of this. One, what films are actually appropriate to remake? Because 
Cycle is a timeless classic. Is it really appropriate to try to update it or redo it? In a lot of cases, I don't think so. But also, it asks the question of how do you remake something? Because this one was a near shot for shot remake, which is one of the reasons why it fell flat. So with that, what would have happened if you did something different? Or a more famous example, something that was more successful would be Scarface. And for those who don't know, the 80s version of Scarface is a remake of the 1930s version. And that also kind of ties along with what films you actually do remake. Because when it comes to Scarface, not a lot of people are familiar with the original one. So doing an updated version kind of makes sense if you want to bring a different material into a new light. But also, it was changed so I think that's where a lot of the success come from. But also there's a whole thing with like, you know, Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone's status in the industry. So, you know, there's also that. And we see this all the time with remakes. And a lot of people I know are frustrated with remakes because that's what all we see. But, you know, I think there is need to be a better conversation had on like, what is appropriate? What should we do and how we should do it? And I just think this is a good example. It's not a good movie, but I think it's one of those things where it's like, this is an example that you look at when you talk about the topic of remakes. That's an interesting approach to the question because I feel like you're not looking at something a little bit more um, direct, like a lot of people would consider Avatar for this type of thing, where it's like, this is a 3D groundbreaking masterpiece, but I don't particularly like it. However, you are discussing something that's important to the discussion of film and the theory of film. And I think that's a de- that's definitely a different approach than I was anticipating. I like it. It's certainly a take on the remake I haven't heard because generally most takes on the remake are throw it away now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's Hitchcock. Like, is that a? That, it's also what filmmakers are we allowed to remake? Hitchcock is off limits. Hitchcock's allowed to remake himself, and that's about it. <laughs> Which he has multiple times. Exactly. That's why I said that. And he he has a definitely adapted his own work, and uh, he's done it well. So, yeah, I feel well for sure the um, the Gus Van Sant. Uh, Psycho is really, really not good, especially compared to its its uh, its original source. Um, but yeah, I do feel like it's important to the whole conversation because it's like, why can't we remake this? Where is the line drawn with where it's like what we can remake and what we shouldn't? Because um, you know, a lot of people would pick their own favorites. Like I might say never touch a racer head, but somebody else might be like, yeah, that'll be interesting. I'd love to see what uh, so-and-so would do with it. Where does the line get drawn? And is it a, an objective one or a subjective one? And it's uh, as much as uh, Psycho sucks, like the, uh, the Gus Van Sant one, in my opinion, um, I at least, knowing it's Gus Van Sant, I at least respect it as an attempt slash experiment. Yes, that makes sense. With my one, my one's a much more respected film, so much so that it actually won Best Picture back in 1956, oh. I believe. It's Around the World in 80 Days by Michael Anderson. You mean widely considered one of the worst Best Picture winners? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the fact that it won back in the day. Um, yeah, Around the World in 80 Days. I mean, on one hand, if you watch this today... The cinematography is outstanding, especially a lot of the scenic shots. And I, I'm still really taken, a, taken away with like 
how this thing looks and the scope of this thing. For those of you who haven't seen the film, the name is pretty much a telltale sign of what it's about. It's this uh, rich aristocrat, and I think it's his valet at this little club that he's a part of. Um, he is given a bet to travel around the world in 80 days, and that's pretty much it. So he visits all these different countries, and that's a great exploitation of being able to go on location and just capture amazing, breathtaking architecture or scenery and all of that good stuff. Not to mention that the film's also widely known for its incredibly huge cast, which includes throwaway cameos by like uh, Marlene Dietrich and, and Frank Sinatra, I believe. Like you see them and they don't even have lines. Like this cast has like 50 recognizable faces of its time. Um, kind of, I think the inspiration there was to be like, you're kind of going sightseeing and trying to see who you're spotting in these areas. On those fronts, it's a brilliant, brilliant film. However, the film itself as a story is just crap. Like the, uh, the comedic tone of the film is terrible, especially because it leads to a lot of stereotyping. Since you're visiting a lot of different areas, that's not good. Shirley MacLaine in Darkface, that's not good. Um, you know, you have Captain Flash, who's basically saving the comedic tone of the entire film, but like, it shouldn't really be there to begin with. And if you've seen this thing, it's three hours or so. Obviously an epic, obviously big. And it's this whole quest. Can this guy get around the world in 80 days? And the ending of the film could not be more half-assed. It's so tame. It basically is just like a really stupid slapstick punchline at the end of this big adventure. It's like if Lawrence of Arabia, this four-hour thing was like, you know, this big adventure and everything. And it ends on... Um, T. Lawrence slipping on a banana peel and being like, oops, oh, my bad. <laughs> and that's how it ends. Like, it's, it, it ends really poorly. So, yeah, as much as, as it is uh, a, a fantastic marvel in terms of its uh, casting scope and its geographical scope, um, it's, it's a great film. But otherwise, I think it's very mediocre and very lackluster. It's interesting because uh, Around the World in 80 Days is a book I really enjoyed. I've been in a stage production of it. Um, but I haven't seen the movie since I was quite little. And I think what I do remember most strongly is that the pretty colors looked really pretty, basically. But there's never really been a serious adaptation of that book. Uh, I mean, I don't mean one that's entirely serious because it is quite lighthearted, but one that takes it seriously. And that's still something in cinema I would like to see. Yeah, because you can have fun, but be serious. Like, I, And I don't think that's something that some filmmakers do. Uh, kind of can understand i don't know what was yours rachel mine is white zombie which is considered to be the first feature-length zombie film at least in hollywood so this was made by i cannot remember the guy's name halpern Productions. so it was one of the very few independent films being made at the time but it was made on the universal studios lot so if you see set pieces in the movie that are familiar that's why and it was made in 1932 um, it starred Bella Lugosi, although to be honest, his prosthetic eyebrows did most of the acting. <laughs> and um, Madge Bellamy as the damsel in distress. So this movie creaks a lot, even by the standards of 1930s monster movies, which tend to creak, this one is not great. The plot is kind of disjointed. The acting is way over the top, even by the standards of the era. 
Even then, it was pretty much wrecked by the critics. But horror fans have learned to appreciate it since because it was the birth of the zombie film and it does have some genuinely scary moments and it's got some really beautiful cinematography. It looks good as a movie. The borrowed sets look really cool, even though they weren't made for the movie. And it it draws a lot on what 1930s Hollywood considered to be traditional voodoo. So not terribly accurate, but it's very different from the zombies we see today. They're not very fast. They're not really undead. It's more like they're possessed. Like we see zombies later on come back to life, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I mean, de-zombified. So it is an interesting take because we're like, this is how zombies were viewed by the mainstream about, oh, now 90 years ago? No, no, not 90 years ago. Was it actually that long ago? Jeez. But it is quite problematic considering that it takes place in Haiti in 1932. So uh, just a warning for anybody who wants to see it. It's not very good. And that makes it less appealing. Um, the only thing I like about the film is that um, it inspired the band White Zombie, which uh, are really good. I, I, I like them growing up. I don't care for Rob Zombie, his solo stuff too, too much. But White Zombie, that's some groovy, that's some groovy stuff. What about his filmography? No. <laughs> Just <laughs> terrible. That's for another pod. That's for terrible movies. So neither of you guys have seen the movie. Uh, for White Zombie, um, I'm aware of it. I've never seen it. I haven't seen it. I'm going to have to check that out, though. I'd say it would chiefly appeal to horror fans just to see how things started out at the beginning of the genre. But other than that, yeah, no, give it a miss. Is it really close to 90 years old? It came out in the 30s? 32. So 90 years old, exactly. Oh, my goodness. Wow. that's. I would say, you know, some movies of the era that are well-regarded, like Dracula and Frankenstein, they do have some of the same issues, like it's over the top and that kind of thing, but they have a certain gravitas that this movie just cannot take on. No, it doesn't sound like it. Well, mm-hmm. uh, unlike James, I don't think I'm going to be checking that out. It sounds <laughs> like it's a completely like the antithesis of what my taste is. But uh, now we're going to get into films that we actually do like. What's for the second half of this podcast, Rachel? So for the second half, I was thinking... There are so many film records and film firsts and all kinds of achievements out there that don't really get talked about. Maybe the film's well-known for other reasons. Maybe the film slipped under the radar completely. There are a lot of reasons why we might not celebrate them. So this is what we're going to talk about in the second half. Woo! So basically, the films that we want to be taught in film school. Yeah, or just films we want to shout out for whatever reason. And we love our shout outs. Should we go in the same order? Sure. Alrighty, uh, James, what film do you want to give a shout out to? Okay, so I actually found a really interesting one. So my first idea was to talk about a film that I haven't seen all of. I've seen part of it, which is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because it was the first film to be completely colorized digitally. Mm. But there wasn't that much of a conversation to be had about that. And, and the way it went was the reason they did a digital intermediate was because the color timer, he couldn't. He got like that golden sepia look that you see throughout the film, but he would lose things like blue skies because like the photochemical process is like when you're dipping it in the solutions, it does affect the entire picture and he wasn't getting results. So that's how they with digital, you can actually just render isolated spots. But I found something a little bit more interesting. Did you know that Red Dawn was the first film to be released rated PG-13? You know what? I was going to do that one. (laughs) Oh, you were? Yeah, I went with something else, but that's really funny. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I found it really interesting. 
with the PG-13 rating because it didn't exist before that. And the reason they did that was because of the level of violence. Because they thought it was a bit too much for younger kids, but a little bit older could handle it. So I don't know. I just find it really fascinating when it comes to like the history of rating and stuff because it was kind of done on the fly and it's always ever changing. I just thought it, I also just thought it was funny because it's like Red Dawn of all things. I look at it now and I'm like, this is PG-13. Because I mean, it's like I, I still find it entertaining, but it's a little corny. But I, I guess for the time, it was the 80s. So, you know, also like that stacked ensemble cast of future superstars like we constantly saw in the 80s. I'm confused though. I thought Red, um, I thought that Gremlins was kind of the spark of PG-13. Was that a part of the conversation or am I wrong? Well, apparently the first, well, the first one issued was a movie called The Flamingo Kid, which starred Matt Dillon, but Red Dawn was released first. My understanding was that Gremlins and one of the Indiana Jones movies were rated PG and then everyone's like, whoa, this shouldn't be PG and it went from there. I see. So they like inspired it, but like Red Dawn was like the first one outside of um, the one that you just said, James, that what is a flamingo kid? <laughs> yeah. Outside of those two to be actually issued, uh, issued to it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I uh, completely went a bit of a different route. Uh, the film that I picked isn't really necessarily uh, iconic or innovative in any sort of way, but I personally feel like it is kind of crucial for film 101 classes, especially since I'm going back to the 50s. Um, I went with Invention for Destruction, which is a fantasy film by Carol Zaman. It's, a, it's from Czechoslovakia. Uh, if either of you are familiar with this film, this thing is just an absolute mind-boggling experience to watch. The reason why I'm picking it out is because uh, it's blending of you know, elaborate sets, uh, animation, live action, all sorts of stuff is incredibly well done. And it's so idiosyncratic because it's a part of the Czech movement from the 50s and 60s and so forth that would eventually lead into the new wave movement, I believe. Um, but it also is so reminiscent of the silent early, early, like even 1800s works of uh, innovators, especially like Georges Maillet, where you're looking at these whimsical, uh, childlike creations, almost like these illusions. And uh, Adventure for Destruction is such a great adventure film, um, where again, it looks like you're looking at like a living storybook. And I feel like if they're going to be teaching stuff like Wes Anderson, who has to be inspired by a film like this, I feel like the works of uh, Carol Zaman in general, but especially his opus, which I think is Invention for Destruction, I feel like that's kind of imperative for Film 101. And, you know, if you're talking about George Maillet as well, why not show what that would look like decades later? Like how similar, but also progressively interesting it is. Like, I feel like it's such a creative, singular type of experience I feel like Czech film is kind of slept on in general by uh, casual film fans, both animated and live action. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, unless you're really like in the depth of Film 101 or you're like us three co-hosts here who actively seek out films and we try to go the extra mile. I feel like companies, especially like Criterion, are doing a good job of highlighting it. So the average casual film goer might discover this stuff. But I feel like in terms of where it's covered, especially academically, 
it kind of needs to be done more because I feel like Czechoslovakia and New Wave is some of the most inspirational, eye-opening, interesting stuff I think I've ever seen. Yes. Um, I believe the Notorious Clockman short, which was um, considered lost media for a long time, was also Czech animation, but it was a bit later. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, you know, animation, live action, a mixture of the two. Um, not that Inventor for Destruction is New Wave. It's not. But I feel like this type of imagination certainly helped with that upcoming wave, um, especially without how unhinged it is. So clearly, like, Czech filmmaking in general is just very interesting and imaginative. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, it's amazing how many films absolutely blossomed in, or how many film scenes absolutely blossomed in the 1960s. I'm reminded of that over and over and over. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of which, there's uh, just not blossoms, but daisies. But uh, nonetheless, uh, after that terrible segue, um, what about you, Rachel? What is uh, the one film you want to highlight for uh, its uh, innovative reasons? Well, like James, I was thinking about ratings. As I said, I almost went with Red Dawn, and now I'm really glad I didn't. But I actually want to talk a little bit earlier with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. This was based on the play by Edward Albee. It came out in 1966. It starred Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Sandy Dennis, and George, whose name I can't remember, but he just died this year, Seagal. And uh, at the time, it did set the Oscar record of being nominated in every single category it was eligible for. So all the, all the feature film awards it could go for, it was in there. And it won several. The thing about it is all these plays tend to be a little bit foul-mouthed, or at least for the standards of the era, they were foul-mouthed. So Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was already a Broadway hit. It was a classic, or it was rapidly becoming so. And people said, well, how are you going to adapt this movie when there's a ton of swearing, lots of sexual references? This does not fly in Hollywood of the mid-1960s. And so there was a lot of question on how they were going to do it. Along with Blow Up, the, the release of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was the first nail in the coffin for the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code was this really strict... A form of censorship in Hollywood talked about how certain subjects could be depicted and it certainly banned any sexual references and any swearing you had to get really creative to make movies under the code so as this movie was being prepared both the MPAA and the Catholic Legion of Motion Pictures said they were not going to approve it so they weren't sure what was going to go on but the film actually did manage to be released they changed a couple of the swear words I think they removed the F word basically and yeah, they refused to condemn the movie. They said this movie is good. It has value, even with all the bad language. And it got released and was a huge success. Within two years, Hollywood had a rating system. At first, I think it was initially like the equivalent of G, PG, and R. And as we learned later, got PG-13. And it was because of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But I don't think a lot of people remember that. I actually completely forgot that, to be honest. Because the, you know, the start of the new Hollywood movement was like right around the corner, and then you have something like Psycho, which came before it. I feel like it kind of gets lost in the middle, where it was still impactful for a different reason on the whole, you know, the whole scene. Let's say exactly, yeah. It's it's definitely a really good film to see. I would recommend it very much, and it was groundbreaking. But I don't think a lot of people think of it that way. It's also Elizabeth Taylor's finest performance by far. It's a damn good film. I'll say that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, um, 
We're going to get into three more additional shout-outs since we love them so much. They're going to be our weekly recommendations. But before we do that, since we love shouting out so much, so much, uh, Rachel, give us a couple of shout-outs. Right. So we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the K-Cut. We are posting all kinds of cool stuff uh, from day to day. We like film trivia, as you might have learned last week. And this month, our cinematic smorgasbord movies are collectively The Time of the Gypsies and individually Holiday, Nowhere, and um, The Red Turtle. That was the one assigned to me. I really should remember that. Alrighty. So for random recommendations, since we're discussing uh, ratings and all of that, and The Death of the Hayes Code, one of my favorite nails in that coffin is uh, the the brilliantly violent and suggestive and really ex- exploitational, if you look at it in a certain way, film and start to the new Hollywood movement, Bonnie and Clyde. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Like, it's one of those ones where you kind of watch it at first either because of its legacy or because of its notoriety, but I think it's just hands down a fantastic film. If my understanding is correct... Um, it basically was like a film that was destined to fail. It was basically like the equivalent of a B movie that because of uh, Warren Beatty's connection with it, who was supposed to initially just be a producer, it kind of picked up speed and ended up being nominated for a bunch of Oscars and changing the course of, of Hollywood. So there you go. It's one of the finest films to just be gratuitous. Speaking of which, I think we can also say that Bonnie and Clyde's last heist was the great envelope mix-up of 2017 at the Oscars. <laughs> they had they, uh, they they couldn't just stop there. No, they they had to they had to keep going and try and try and steal a win for La La Land. But uh, alas, it was uh, it was all for nothing. <laughs> we don't really blame Donaway and Beatty. Much. No, no, it's not actually their fault. But uh, we have to. Uh, we love the Oscars here. We have to. We have to bring up something like that every every now and then. So, anyway, Bonnie and Clyde. I adore the film. I saw it first as a teenager. To this day, I still love it. Again, it's one of the few examples of of gratuity that I absolutely love in film. All right, James, what's yours? Uh, so, kind of go along with the theme. So, so yeah, discussing the whole situation with ratings i'm going to recommend the documentary this film is not yet rated and it is a documentary that has a discussion about the conflict between filmmakers and the ratings board and this kind of weird double standard they have when it comes to sexual situations versus violence because there seems to be a little bit more of a bias towards sexual content where you're getting a more extreme rating than it is for violence and another part of the film was the original cut of the film was given a rating of NC-17 because it showed scenes of graphic sex content. And so the director appealed and he describes the appeal process and also investigates who the board is. So it's kind of a really interesting film because it started out as one thing and then you get to see a living example of the very topic it's talking about. That's really neat. It's it's really interesting to see how the ratings can be assigned depending on the content. Like I know there's an anti-LGBT bias. They also reveal who's a part of the current board at the time. Like they actually do investigative work and actually pinpoint the actual people who are part of the board because they're kept a mystery for the most part. So is it a bunch of grumpy old dudes? Because that's what I pictured. Uh, it's actually a variety of people. Nobody under their mid 40s, though. <laughs> of course. Okay. Well, I say they appoint us. 
Yeah, I think we would do a fantastic job, uh, especially considering how well-spoken we are on this pod. Anyway, uh, Rachel, what is yours? So I was going back to genre, and actually it's funny because Andreas alluded to this earlier in the episode, and I'm going to go with what is generally believed to be the first science fiction film ever, though it's not a feature, and that is Georges Méliès' A Trip to the Moon. Mm. Many film fans will have already seen it, but if you haven't, you have to watch it. It's it's just part of be- loving movies. Sorry. It's about 12 minutes long. It's on YouTube. It's an enchanting sci-fi adventure from, from 1902, if you can believe it. And it always, it never fails to delight me. And I've even shown it to kids from this century and they, they think it's great too. Yeah. And it, uh, one last thing to note about that, Georges Meillet was actually a magician who uh, started making films to try and enhance his tricks. So he's coming from this as a, what kind of tricks can I bring up my sleeve? And uh, of course, trying to entertain younger audiences with these uh, magical stories. So it's, yeah, it, it's a must. And it's only 12 minutes, as Rachel said. It's it's so short. It's free everywhere. It's available it's everywhere. It's public domain by now. Exactly. So it's so easy to watch. And uh, it's so short that you can do a, a double feature with it by watching the music video for Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins, which is heavily inspired by it. <laughs> so why not make it a nice uh, lunch break? That's how short both of those two combined are. So just make it a nice lunch break. But... Nonetheless, uh, thank you so much for taking some time with us right now. That was the K-Cut. We are now going into the L-Cut. <laughs> <laughs>